everybody, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash mediumcoolpod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Also, be sure to, you know, rate and subscribe or follow and leave us a review, whatever the heck you do, just... Help us out with the podcast thing. It helps content creators when you do such things. And if you like what you hear, by all means, go let people know. Uh, We really appreciate it. Now, all that said, today uh, we kind of had to pivot because our friend Evan Dossie from the Midwest Film Journal had to, you know, he had a family thing come up and he uh, couldn't record the episode with us, so I, I kind of just like took a quick pivot. I looked at, I, I have an ongoing list of people that I want to have on, but I've already planned out the rest of the year, pretty much. So, you know, I you know I don't get to fit a lot of these people in, especially the newer ones I add. But one that's been on my list for a long time, and I just never had him on for some reason, is JB, John Bottolieri. He is my buddy Jake Bottolieri's father. Jake Bottolieri did the, uh, the Paul Schrader movie, uh, first reformed, he did the Wong Kar Wai thing that we did. He also did the uh, John Cassavetes marathon. Uh, Jake is just a really old, really great. Well, he's not really old, but I mean, he's an old, really great friend of mine. And uh, his dad is someone that I've never, I've never like been close to per se, just because he lived in Chicago and I lived in Muncie. You know what I mean? But I've always loved his dad and his mom. His mom Jan's absolutely fantastic. They are the best family. I love them to pieces. And uh, I just have such fond memories. So, anyways, long story short, you know, I just quickly texted JB and I'm like, "Hey, I had I had uh, my guest fall through. Do you want to come like last minute, come hang out and talk about some movies?" And he was like, "Absolutely! Like, what are we talking about? How do you want to do this?" And I sent him a few things, but one thing I encouraged him to do is I was like, "Hey, man, this could this would be really helpful because we could kind of go. We we were kind of running out of time, like to get this episode out." And I was like, "Instead of us having to cram a bunch of movies." Why don't we just do like a list together? And he was down with it. So this week, instead of you know talking to Evan Dossie and talking about Edward Scissorhands and uh, The World's End, I think were the two movies we were going to discuss. Um, and I watched, so I'll talk about them at some point at least uh, here soon. I'd seen them both before, but it's neither here nor there. The point is, with JB, we decided to do, and this is going to be called something different the entire episode because I don't have an actual title, but I'm going to try to explain to you what we're going to talk about here. It was the top five most influential movies on how we view movies. So what were five movies? And for me, I can't say they're the top five, but they're definitely just like the best of the best for me, like the most influential. There's just probably like 30 movies that could be on this episode. And, you know, as I was writing my notes for this episode, these were the ones that came out. Uh, But anyways, you know, it's just like the top five movies that after you watch them, you couldn't watch movies the same anymore. They taught you something. They, they, they change the lens in which you view movies. And so, Uh, Yeah, this was a really fun list to do. We went ahead and uh, did it that way. And I'll tell you what, man, JB can talk and everything comes out of his mouth. I love. So I hope you guys uh, love listening to JB as much as I do. Uh, I just want to give a quick preview of next week. Uh, We have a really cool thing going on. The remake of Candyman comes out this weekend. And uh, Joe, our old friend Joe, and I got a virtual screening that we're going to be doing uh, ahead of time. And then we're going to 
you know, talk about it next week. It's going to be fantastic. Joe's going to be back. We're going to talk about this Candyman remake. It's going to be awesome. So uh, definitely uh, stay tuned for that. Be here next week. You'll get to hear Joe. You'll get to hear about Candyman. It's going to be awesome. We're going to do a new movie finally. Finally, we're getting screeners again because I can't always make it to the damn theater screenings. And they start doing that again a little bit. Uh, and most of them that I get are in Indy. It's like, dude, I live an hour away. I can't always just, it doesn't matter. Anyways, the point is we got a virtual screening for this. Very excited to talk about a new movie. But before we get to next week, of course, we got to do this week. Let's go see what JB's up to. I'm telling you, this is going to be a great time. We're going to talk about 10 movies total, five of mine, five of his. It's kind of amazing how they kind of fit together at times. And, uh, we just have a great time talking. So why don't you give it a listen? This is me talking with JB. All right, everybody, I am here with JB from F This Movie, uh, and we're going to be talking about our, I don't even know how to talk about this, our top five most influential films on the way that we watch movies. I don't really know, I couldn't think of a catchier thing there, maybe you can, JB, but uh, JB, do me a favor, go ahead and tell folks who you are. I will start real quick, though, with, uh, we've had Jake on, who is your son. Uh, Jake's Jake been is on my here. son. Yeah, he's done. He his, did the his cast- mother informs me that he's my son. <laughs> yeah, he did the Cassavetes marathon with us. Uh, we talked about uh, Schrader's first reformed. We talked about Wong Kar Wai. We've done a lot of fun stuff. We have more to come. But I have I have Daddy Bottelieri here. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about yourself? Let the listeners know. You know what you're up to. And uh, thank you for using my last name because for 11 years I didn't because I had the mistaken notion that the people at my day job would look askance at some of the rough, rowdy language that was sometimes used on F This Movie. As it turns out, nobody cared. But that's why I originally went by JB, because I didn't want nonsense at work. No, that makes sense. And um, Jake is my son, and I'm immensely proud of him. And I taught high school for too many years, including a film studies class that I was very proud of. And I've been writing a weekly column and recording podcasts for F This Movie, Movie Love for Movie Lovers, for the past 11 years. Yeah, the thing I love about you guys... with I'm the old man. He is the old man. And uh, the thing about F This Movie that's so funny, and I mean this in the most endearing and positive way, is you guys have such a a unique viewpoint from my perspective on a lot of the movies. (laughs) What's the... um, Name some of the people, not Patrick... But there's another guy that's on there. He was on your top 10 of 2020. Adam Risky. Yes, Risky. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. When, when you have a guy who puts like a fucking Lifetime movie or something on their list. I mean, you guys yes. gave him a lot of shit for it, but I was like, Adam, dude. <laughs> Adam is fond of the curveball. Um and Adam is living proof that there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> no, but you guys seriously have uh, what I like listening to F this movie, and I encourage listeners to do so, is uh, like I often either disagree or I get a perspective I did not, I would not have taken. And I always appreciate that more than just listening to someone who agrees with me. You know what I mean? And I, and I appreciate you saying that. I remember a while back we did a podcast on uh, Interstellar. And I guess everyone in North America who loved Interstellar found our podcast <laughs> because they thought it would be uh, heaps and heaps of praise for King Nolan. 
And that is not what our interstellar podcast consisted of. And boy, people were people were acting like we were burning Bibles or something. Um, we did we did not enjoy that particular film. It's an ongoing thing. I feel like you guys bring it up. Like, well, this isn't an interstellar problem, but you know, or something like it's it's been a thing I've heard you mention before. Uh, it's something Jake and I have talked about because there are, there are those movies that you can admit have so many problems. There are movies that you can admit are bad, but you just like them for some reason. Oh, sure. And Interstellar is one of those for me where it's like, this is not great. There are a lot of problems, and I would probably agree with you on them. And Jake and I were talking because he's like, you're just wrong. <laughs> and early, early on, we identified, for instance, that for many people, there are films that they love because they fell in love with them when they were young. Yeah. And I don't want to take that away from you. And I have no interest in arguing with your six-year-old self. Yeah. That's not something that I relish. So if it brings you joy, I'm happy for you. But uh, Interstellar is problematic. <laughs> yeah. And you got to be honest, you know, and that's a big thing that we promote here on the podcast. Just like what you like but I might not agree with you. And that's pretty much the motto. So today's... You know, Austin, Austin, the fourth dimension is love. It is. Dude, that is Did so... Did you know that? That is so lame. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was time. I, I, had, been, I had been raised to think it was time, yeah. but, but Christopher Nolan proved me wrong. <laughs> it's love. And the Beatles agree with him, so who am I to disagree? Oh my gosh. No, it, I admit with that, that is so dumb. But anyways, okay. <laughs> Like it's so dumb, but I can't. It, it's 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 execution. You know what I mean? Like there's something about just on the most popcorn, sit back and enjoy level that I just like his style. But I watch it and, and I'm I, like, God, that is a stupid part. But man, Matt Damon was in this thing for a long time. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> I will give you, I will give you the first half hour, which I think does an amazing job of. Um, portraying the dread of what's happening on earth. I mean, I think that was done masterfully. So I'll hand you that. It's only when we get teeny Matt McConaughey peering through the shutters no. that it starts to fall apart for me. I agree. No, and I do agree. And I love that we're just talking about a completely different movie, but that I, you know, maybe one day <laughs> I'll have an interstellar conversation. We can just talk about it. Not that you'd even be interested in that. The point is though, today is the top five films, most influential films on how we view movies or whatever. That's going to change every time I say it. And uh, today we were supposed Spoiler to have alert. Interstellar is not on my list. <laughs> No, we, we were supposed to have uh, our friend uh, Ethan on from uh, Midwest Film Journal. That didn't work out. So uh, this is what I threw together pretty quickly. JB, you were kind enough to kind of jump in. And uh, so I really appreciate that. So now this. everybody gets second best. <laughs> no, dude. Well, we don't have to go there. Anyway, <laughs> I was about to uh, praise you, but you don't need that. Uh, no, so nope. we have we have, <laughs> we have five... Uh, five movies each that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a little bit why they, you know, inspired us or why they, uh, you know, kind of changed the lens that we watch movies. And I'm going to go ahead and let you go first, JB. I want you to give us whatever the first movie on your on your list is. Let us know, you know, what it is and why. Okay, I'm going way way back because I've noticed lately when I research things on the internet machine. It seems that there's a growing consensus that film history started somewhere around 1997. <laughs> and I take issue with this. So I'm going way back. I'm throwing your listeners way back. 
to the uh, the year of our Lord, 1935. And the film is called Bride of Frankenstein. Wow, yeah. And I first watched it because I was a great Universal Monsters fan. And then I was probably eight or 10. And I sat down to watch Bride of Frankenstein. And it's so different than any of the other Universal Monster films. And uh, it threw me for a loop because A, it's not particularly scary, not compared to something like The Wolfman. And um, it has quite a sense of humor, which even at 10 years old, I recognize that there's something going on here. Why does that one tall guy keep saying that it's his only weakness, but then it's a different, have a cigar, it's my only weakness, have some gin, it's my only weakness. How many weaknesses does that guy have? (laughs) Oh, he's Satan. Yeah. 10-year-old JB says, oh, he's Satan. And I think I got it when um, Ernest Thesiger's uh, Pretorius says, Sometimes I wonder what it would be like if we were all devils with no talk of angels and being good. And remember, at this point, I'm a fine Catholic boy. And I hear that line and I'm like, what? (laughs) Sometimes I wonder what it would be like if we were all devils with no talk of angels and being good. Oh, my God. Oh, so suddenly it all starts getting to me. Obviously, Karloff's performance is at the center of it. And um, he's not the monster. He's this misunderstood stand-in for all of humanity who just wants a little understanding and love and to be left alone. It's Ernest Thesiger's Pretorius, who's the monster. I mean, he's just the worst person who ever lived. Uh, And then you get Elsa Lanchester at the end as the bride. And to show you how effective her performance is, I think she's in the movie for about six minutes. And yet, it's iconic. I think, think she's of. on the shirt. Yes, I see it. Yeah, she's, she's on. Like... She's on the shirt that you're wearing right now <laughs> yeah. for a six-minute performance, most of which is hissing, uh, which I later learned was based on uh, the swans in Regent's Park in England. When you got too close to the babies, the mothers would hiss at you, yeah. and Lanchester used that in her performance. Because at that point, uh, Boris, the monster, turns to her for some love and affection, and she hisses at him. And I would suggest that when women hiss at you, that's a that's a pretty direct message. <laughs> it's a that, pretty direct message, yeah. That's unequivocal. <laughs> so you get this beautiful looking film. Um, it's just it just sort of defines both German expressionism and sort of gothic fun. And it's got some of the greatest makeup ever done. It's got really memorable dialogue. You stay, we belong dead. And um, at 10 year old, at 10 years old, it made my brain explode. Yeah. Um, it costs $397,000 to make, which might just show you how much money was worth in 1935. Yeah. At the time it was released, it grossed 2 million, but adjusted for inflation, that's 40 million. So that ain't bad. No. And all these websites that give grosses, you you can't possibly think, well, Universal made $2 million off The Bride of Frankenstein. No, no, no. When you consider VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and T-shirts and merchandising and Halloween costumes, oh, my God. Yeah. Those things, in 15 years, they're 100 years old. So they're 85 years old. Can you imagine the torrent of money, the river of money? that the Universal Monsters have made. And as I never get tired of saying, 
because I once went to Universal Studios in Hollywood and took the tram tour and the the guide, the tour guide, the one with the little microphone said, I'm not making this up. <laughs> in the 30s, Universal like couldn't afford the big stars. So that's why we made monster movies because it didn't matter who was under the makeup. And I'm sitting on the tram, like trying not to stand up and shout or yeah. to strangle her because between Dracula and Frankenstein in 1931, those two movies saved the studio from bankruptcy. We wouldn't have universal if it weren't for Dracula and Frankenstein, a fact I wish they would trumpet a little bit more, but who am I to, to say? <laughs> yeah. You, I, I, I am aware of your affinity for these universal movies because you have what I would call the movie cave in your home, which is this little underground Essence. bunker. Uh, that's where you are right now uh, with just walls lined with Blu-rays and, um, but you there's, have all of these. Yeah, you have all these. There's, like, there's the bride and Frankenstein I'm, as I move my laptop and probably disconnect myself. <laughs> no, but I do remember you had like a, a, like busts of some of the monsters. And uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you have like a life size, like just like a full body of one of them maybe or something. Am I making that up? Well, I have a life size uh, Wicked Witch from Snow White. Don't ask me why I bought that. <laughs> the... Um, the Nosferatu bust and the Creature from the Black Lagoon bust are one-to-one. Yeah, I remember the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. I, I just love Nosferatu. No, so so I'm going to ask you a question about Bride because it's been so long since I've seen this that I don't feel like I can actually adequately talk about it. You're making me want to go back and watch these because the thing I love about the Universal uh, horror movies is uh, one thing that you didn't mention are like the sets on all of these movies are so great. Actually, recently for the podcast went back and watched Young Frankenstein uh, and learned that they used a lot of the same props and the same things from the Frankenstein movies. And it just made me, that even made me want to go back and like rewatch these movies because they're so short. They're like 60, oh. 70 minutes or something. Like they're really short. And as they, as they go along, they get shorter and shorter. Uh, Mel Brooks was lucky enough to be able to use the uh, electrical equipment by Kenneth Strickfadden that was used in both uh, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. You know, it's interesting when you look at the movies through a lens of German expressionism, that if you look at Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and then Son of Frankenstein, the sets actually get more gothic and more expressionistic as you go along. And if you watch Son of Frankenstein, which of course I would recommend, the sets there, because I think they spent a little bit more money. Well, the first two movies were a hit. Let's spend a <laughs> dollar. Um that the sets get really crazy uh, when you get the sun. And then after Ghost, it's diminishing returns, and then they're they're trying to do them on a budget. But the first three, beautiful sets. Yeah. Well, what about Bride of Frankenstein in particular? What specifically? You've touched on a lot of things, but in terms of your lens, the thing, like when you watch movies, and it could be specific, because some of, I'll just tell you now, some of my titles are specific to genre, specific to an aspect of film that these make me. Is there something about this, like what about it had influenced think, your lens? I think I, I, I think you're right to point out genre, because if we're talking about the horror genre, as Bill Condon points out in one of those documentaries, they keep including ever since they made them for the DVDs, Frankenstein was the jaws of its day. It made a lot of money. And my guess is Universal just wanted to stamp out another one and make some more money. 
And James Whale had no interest in doing that because he had done that. And the fact that I almost compare it to Tim Burton making Batman, um, Batman Returns. Is that what the second one's called? Second one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I should remember that, but I'm getting older and I'm losing my mind. Um, Batman is fine, but Batman Returns is one of the most twisted personal films ever made. And so he uses the success of the first film to sort of make the film he really wanted to make. And Whale had no interest in repeating Frankenstein. And so told Universal, I will do it if you let me do it my way. And so all these other characters and all these other tones sort of creep in. And it shows you, I'm fond at F this movie of saying that most movies can't even manage to be one thing. And I really give a lot of credit to movies that can be a number of things. It's a gothic fable. It's a horror movie. It's a twisted comedy. Um, The film has been interpreted lots and lots of different ways. Um, And I give it so much credit for being so ambitious when it would have been very easy to just do a, a, a connect the dots sequel that would have made everyone happy and would have made it would have made as much money. Um, but Bride of Frankenstein is very different than than the original Frankenstein. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I actually didn't know that James Will didn't want to make it. So that's very interesting. That's it. That explains a lot on why they do feel different, you know. And between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, he makes The Invisible Man, which also has a very interesting sense of humor running through it in a, in a lot of ways. Um, it's just it's just terrific. It's a it's a warm pair of flannel pajamas, man. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Um yeah, I think that's a great pick. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing these others. I'm going to go ahead and give you mine here, my my first of five. And uh, I feel like this is also very specific. And this kind of ties into what you were saying earlier with the arguing with a six-year-old. You know what I mean? Like movies that, uh, <laughs> that uh, got you when you were younger, right? Um, this is actually the film that got me into movies. Uh, and to this day... I still see certain aspects of film and I'm just like, yep, that guy could do it better, you know? Uh, and it's, it's Jean-Pierre Genet's Amélie from 2001. I had never seen anything like this ever. Uh, and I, I actually, prior to this, because I wasn't always a movie guy, I didn't get into movies until 2003 when I saw Amélie for the first time. And uh, prior to that, I wouldn't watch subtitles. Like anything mm. with subtitles, I was just like, I don't want to read. You know, that was probably uh, <laughs> part of the people I was surrounded by as well. Uh, but I remember, you know, I'd seen the City of Lost Children before, but I watched a dub version, which I love that movie. I had no idea what a director did. I didn't know what a producer did. I didn't know what a writer, like I knew writers wrote, but I didn't know the extent to their position. So watching Jean-Pierre Genet, you know, I didn't know that he also had made the city of lost children. Granted, he had a, a, a co-creator with Mark Caro, but uh, Amelie, you know, uh, my my wife Amanda, we dated back in two thousand three, and my friend tried to show us this movie. And when I saw subtitles, I intentionally went to sleep. I was like, "Fuck this!" <laughs> and I laid my head on her lap, and then I just went to sleep. 
And uh, afterwards, I wanted to have something to talk to her about so we could keep being friends, you know? Uh, and so I watched this movie, and it ended up changing my life, like completely changing everything, because I'd never seen anything. I mean, dude, I was, I was, my favorite movies were The Rock and Dumb and Dumber. That was where my, that was the extent <laughs> of my, of my, you know, cinematic journey. And so seeing Amelie, you can imagine, based on that, I'm sure, how wildly different this movie was. I mean, yeah, that would make your brain explode. Yeah, so colorful. The music was so just. Uh, it just gives you this warm. It's it's the the warm flannel pajamas as you mentioned. Uh, you know Audrey Tattoo's iconic performance is Amelie. Like you can't like what a great look, what a great performance, as well as uh, Matthew Kosovitz. And uh, I love Dominique Pignon. Uh, he's in like all of his movies. He's the guy in like <laughs> Delicatessen, the main guy, and all the, that. The, he's his lucky charm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is absolutely awesome. I love him every time. Uh, but this was directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunet, written by uh, Guillaume Laurent. And uh, it was released April 25th, 2001 in France, but it came here on November 16th, on November 16th, same year. Uh, it was a $10 million budget, and I think this is the biggest difference on, on box office versus budget on my list. Uh, it started with $10 million and made $174 million, which is, uh, I'm not surprised, but I'm more surprised that the other movies on my list did not make that much because a lot of these are kind of I, bigger. I remember it being a sensation, but it took a while to get started. And then as, you know, you, you don't, movies have such a small window now to make a a, a lasting impression on yeah. people. But theaters uh, retained it. It actually got, as you can imagine, amazing word of mouth. And then it became this incredible foreign film sensation in the United States. Um it's such a beautiful little Valentine yeah. to any number of things, including it's a Valentine to the movies, among other things. Um, but it's lovely. It's just, it just makes me feel so great. And and the things I take from this is I think sometimes Jean-Pierre Genet, if you watch any of his other movies, because the, with the exception of Alien Resurrection, uh, I haven't disliked any of his movies because, um, like, to varying degrees. Yeah, I find course. Resurrection problematic too. <laughs> yeah, I really hate that. Like, it's hard for me to own the the quadrilogy, as they call it, because <laughs> I don't want that movie. And every like five years or so, I'll put it in and just see if I feel differently, and it just gets worse. So, uh, but anyways, aside from that, it's an though, ugly, goopy film. Yeah, there's like there isn't. Any of his movies, again, there's some I'm not a huge fan of, but I'm entertained by all of them because I love his style. He has such a distinct style. When he worked with Mark Caro, he had really dark movies, like with Delicatessen and right. uh, and City of Lost Children. I City of Lost love Children. those. I love the way those look. I love the way they feel. Uh, I love all of the things about you know the Cyclops group that has these weird eyes, like these mechanical eyes, and one guy eventually unplugs. Uh, his and puts it in another guy so he can watch himself die. Like these creative little weird moments uh, that yeah. he used to create, but that continues in these and a very long engagement and Micmacs and all these movies that he made after. But it's much more lighthearted. It's much more heartstrings. It's much more like it feels different. But the thing I love about him, not only of that with that style, but it's the attention to detail with every visual aspect. So the performances, yes. the way that people look, the sets, the colors. And even the sound, the music is always somewhat iconic in some way to me. Like I just, when I hear it, I immediately know it's it's that movie. 
Uh, and and watching this, and then watching a whole lot more movies after this, when I first got into film, and coming back to this and rewatching it, I kept always thinking, like, this is the movie I wish movies would take from. And it's funny because I think Jean-Pierre Jeunet uh, kind of overdoes it a lot of times. I think he's, uh, you know, uh, sometimes he gets too distracted maybe by his style and sometimes leaves the story or the narrative or, or, or other aspects of his film behind. But I love him so much, it's entertaining from beginning to end almost always. You know, anytime you can, you know, uh, just like hire a contortionist to just be in a fridge for no reason, hey, it still looks cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so uh, I, I'm super down. Uh, but it's really style. You know, I remember watching, I watched Amelie and then my buddy Riley <clears throat> was like, hey man, you should go watch The French New Wave, which going from The Rock, and Dumb and Dumber to Amelie, and then busting out Godard and Truffaut, uh, which I did. It's a big and I, left turn. But I loved them because they were so different. I was getting more of that. And then I got into Kurosawa and Fellini and all these people. So I thought American movies sucked. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then I came back to Pulp Fiction, and I was like, oh, shit, we make cool movies. And then I learned what a director did because someone mentioned Tarantino, and I'm like, what's a Tarantino you know, and then they told me about that, and I learned that I'd seen some of his movies and didn't even know it, and started putting stuff together. But that's doesn't matter. The point is, Junet, his unique style is really important to me. That that um, you know, even Wes Anderson a lot of times has that visual style that almost takes over almost anything else in the movie, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. But Junet has this unique style that I really connect with, and when I watch other movies. And usually movies that would be more akin to something like this or Wes Anderson or, uh, you know, something that's a little quirky. It might be a little dark, you know, something that has a very distinct visual style. I often go back to Junet and I think of his wide angle shots of close ups where it distorts people's faces or, you know, mm -hmm. just the way he does things, the way he moves the camera, the way he lights things or has them lit, the way he, the color contrasts and all these things. It's very unique to him. It's very unique to him, but it also influences my lens in terms of, it's not that I want everyone to be Junet, but I want people to think about the things he does. You know what I mean? Like, think about how you use that lens. Think about how you use colors. Think about how you're telling <laughs> these visual. And I always go back to like, man, he's so good at this. And Amelie's my, my, my first uh, pick I'm going to mention. You look like you wanted to say something. Go ahead. You were Back when you were asking, what's a Tarantino? Uh, the answer is it's a pizza roll that you eat during the Super Bowl. And also, <laughs> um, I want to make sure I'm not getting confused because more and more lately I get confused. In Amelie, do they play the spoon game? Where they put on their nose? Am I remember? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I have the <laughs> film right. During the time that movie was playing at the music box, the happiest place on earth, the Chicago Repertory Theater that Jake and I. For the few months it was playing there, if you ate anywhere near the music box, you would see someone at another table playing the spoon game. That's awesome. That's how popular that film was. Yeah, and it's crazy because it didn't really win a ton of big awards anywhere. Like, you know, it, it wasn't at like Cannes Film Festival. It wasn't at Oscar. And not that I give a shit about the Oscars or anything. My, but my, again, I, I'm not saying this matters. But because of how big of a sensation it was, a lot of times, a lot of those movies will kind yeah, of just that, get the political, like, you know, they'll kind of be put in there because that's they're the popular. momentum it needs to start getting nominated. Yeah. Um, a long time ago, 
uh, I wrote a column for F this movie where I honestly, well, first of all, I thought it would be simple, but it was, I think it wound up being more research than I ever did for a single column. Obviously, everyone has different tastes, but objectively, I sat down and I looked at every film that had won an Oscar for Best Picture since it started. Yeah. And I concluded, I think they're on 90 or 91. I think when I wrote the article, they were on 84. I concluded that in 84 years, they got it right seven times. <laughs> so the Oscars, the Oscars mean nothing. No, I, 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 I am a kin, we are a kin here, right? Uh, I, I, I criticize them often, and it does blow my mind sometimes because I'm like, this had to win, and it's not even nominated that year, and I'm like, that fucking movie won. Get out of here. Uh, they, but they often get really great foreign language films, though. Those are often really yes. great. Um, maybe because of the nominating process and stuff. I remember yeah. the year that the artist won for yeah. best picture and the artist is a film that desperately wants you to like it and desperately wants me to like it because when you consider what the artist is about, how could I not? But I hated it. I thought it was piffle and the year it won that sort of, Oh, Hollywood is patting itself on the back for a movie about making movies. And okay. I get it. My number two film. <laughs> Isn't for a segue? Go for it. Um, I'm seldom interested in plot for a number of reasons. Plot does not interest me, um, especially since I read Gerald Mast's amazing book, The Comic Mind. And I checked it out of the library, I think when I was 12, and didn't understand a word. It was Greek to me. I, oh, I looked at the pictures. Oh, there's Charlie Chaplin. And then three years later, I checked it out again, and I understood a little bit more. Long story short, I wound up checking it out of the library about 10 times over the next 15 years and gradually understood it. And then I took a class in college on comedy, and that was the textbook. And I That's said, awesome. I think I can handle this class. I've at least attempted to read this damn book. In any case, at one point, Mass says that if what you're watching is a comedy, there are only eight possible plots. There are only eight comic plots. There's only eight. And everything else is variations of a theme. It's like ballet steps. And that really lodged in my brain in terms of, you know, Hollywood wants to make successful films. So the... Um, uh, the the conundrum is how do we make something the same that's different enough so that people will like it? I mean, it's not tater tots. People like tater tots and the tater tot company makes tater tots and people buy them because they like them. But if every film was the same tater tot, that wouldn't fly. So um, you have to do something to make it different, even though, like I said, if you're dealing with comedy, you're you're only basically dealing with eight building blocks. So I'm I'm very not interested in plot. Um, and for that reason, by way of a very weird introduction, my second film is Casablanca, which was made in 1942. Um, I believe that was Warner Brothers. It cost nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and it grossed four and a half million. The fact that it won Best Picture. That's one of the seven times Oscar got it right. Um, and adjusted for inflation, that's 75 million. 
Uh, it's based on an unproduced play called Everybody Comes to Rick's. When I was in grammar school, the big Holiday Inn in downtown Chicago had a lobby bar that was an exact recreation of Rick's Cafe Americana. And because I didn't know what was going on when I was in seventh grade, by the time I became aware of what it was, it was no longer there. But I would give anything to be able to, and clearly back then I wasn't old enough to drink, but imagine having a perfect recreation of Rick's bar within driving distance of your house. I still, that's the missed opportunity of my life. Um, Casablanca, I think, changed the way I looked at movies because it was one of the first times where I said, well, this is a romantic drama. You could say it's a World War II movie, but what it actually is, is sort of a stringent moral fable about how one should lead one's life. Um, that it doesn't take a genius to watch the film and realize that we're looking at a situation where uh, Rick is choosing to live his life alone uh, because he's been hurt. He's the ultimate isolationist. And as the film goes on, different events uh, move him uh, to behave in a more altruistic fashion that maybe no man can be an island. I know that's a cliche, but that your life will be improved to the extent that you interact with other people and try to actually be a part of your life. Um, and I think that's a lesson that people should still learn. And because it's a big studio 1940s movie, it's so wrapped in costumes and performances and memorable lines of dialogue and music that it's this confection that sort of hides the fact that it's, that it's medicine especially medicine to people back then who the film, I think, either explicitly or implicitly was trying to sway people's minds um, to get people more involved in the war effort, to make people see that this would be better for everyone concerned. Um, obviously, it stars Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Paul Henry, uh, Conrad Veidt, who's the big Nazi, and who earlier played Cesare in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which I love, and Claude Rains, uh, who steals the picture because he gets every single good line. Because he's Claude he's given, Rains, that's why. <laughs> he's, he's given every bon mot um, in the film, although I would suggest Humphrey Bogart being the star gets his share. Um, it's an amazing film that, again, like Brian of Frankenstein, you can appreciate in many different ways. You can appreciate it as an involving World War II movie. Um, it's certainly one of the best movie romances ever made. Um, you can enjoy it just because it's a big parade of character actors who are all given their little moment uh, to shine. The um, maitre d' at Rick's is an actor named S.C. Zakal, who was known as Oh, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, TCM just did a big piece about him. Huggles, snuggles, huggies, <laughs> snuggles, snuggies. Um, he was beloved and um, he did lots and lots of movies before his untimely death. But everything he does in the film is entertaining. Um, the actor who plays um, 
the guy at the roulette wheel, the uh, the actress who plays the young refugee who goes to Rick for advice. Um, just down to the smallest extra, it's Warner Brothers sort of saying, here's our big parade of talent. Here's all the actors we have under contract and why we put them under contract, because they're superb. They're superb at what they do. You know, with Casablanca, there are a few things that I really love about this era. <clears throat> think about... Era. Like, era. <laughs> the Think of Criterion Collection, which I know you're a fan. I'm a fan. We always have to take advantage of these 50% off Barnes & Noble days, <laughs> which I did a little July too much this year, but that's fine. Uh, the thing is, when I see a killer restoration of a 1940s or 50s or even earlier black and white gorgeous cinematography movie, right? I just watched uh, Elia Kazan's A Face in the Crowd with my dad, and I didn't have the criterion. I only had whatever was on Amazon Prime. So we watched it, and it looked fine. It was an HD thing. And then as we're watching it, I just bought the criterion because <laughs> like, I'm like, I love this movie. I'd seen it before. Uh, and then I put the Criterion in when I got it just to see, and it's like, it blew my mind how good that movie looks. I say all that to say, I know Casablanca's gotten, I haven't seen it since it's gotten all the big restorations, but God damn it, I would love to see how beautiful this film looks and, and like crazy restoration high definition because the cinematography, I think, is so gorgeous. And it has a way of just capturing each of these characters in those just still shot you know, like, you could just capture moments and you could just put it on your wall. You know what I mean? And that, that's, the, that's one of the big things that stands out to me about Casablanca is just they just set up all those moments so well. I'm guessing because uh, during the COVID pandemic, uh, a lot of studios actually turned back to what Glenn Erickson calls the low-hanging fruit of physical disc releases to make some money. And I'm amazed in the last two months, all the announcements of what's coming out in 4K. Um, Dracula, the 1931 Dracula uh, is coming out on 4K Blu-ray in October, making it the oldest film yet to be presented in 4K Blu-ray. I have to guess that Casablanca is coming out soon. Um, but the most recent Blu-ray uh, restoration was extraordinary. Uh, Warner Brothers came up with a bewildering variety of gigaws to sell the box sets. Um, I bought two of them because I'm an idiot. <laughs> I got a leather Casablanca luggage tag and a set of Casablanca coasters because I wanted a coaster that said Rick's Cafe American because I guess I have money to burn. Um, but both of those box sets came with um, a lot of bonus features, including uh, a documentary about Warner Brothers, a documentary about the making of Casablanca. And um, obviously, the story behind Casablanca is fascinating because they were literally making it up as they went along. And one of the reasons why Ingrid Bergman's performance is so interesting is that it was very late in the party when she actually learned who she was going to end up with. No spoilers here. But I think that actually adds to that performance because I don't know. This is not the movie. This is me. She might look up to Paul Henry, but she's in love with Humphrey Bogart. That's another thing I like about the movie, that it makes this distinction that's very rare for Hollywood films. 
that there can be more than one reason to marry someone. And it's not always uh, hearts and flowers, romantic love. It can be a number of things. And, and God forbid to suggest that a woman could actually be in love with two different men for two different reasons. My God, Austin, this is the forties. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, here, here's kind of my frustration with movies like this, not about the movies, but some people's responses. I love a lot of the really popular, say, film noirs, right? Whether it's Baltese Falcon, Third Man, like the ones that when you look at a list, a lot of times these are at the top. And a yeah, lot of times they the have the either 10. they either have what would be later A-list actors or they have A-list actors in them later in the uh, eras, you know, like, uh, you know, for, um, oh my gosh, is it Touch of Evil that has... Um, uh, Moses from the Ten Commandments. Why can't I think of his name right now? Yes, as Orson Welles explains in Ed Wood, uh, Touch of Evil features Charlton Heston playing a Mexican man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, like, I watch these movies, and take film noir, I'm using it as an example. I love B-noirs. I love Night in the City. I love the Samuel Fuller stuff like Pick Up on South Street. I like oh. these more than a lot of like the big ones, right? Not all, but a lot of them. Um, but what bothers me is when I start talking to people about these B-film noirs or whatever, a lot of times they won't like stuff like Double Indemnity or Maltese Falcon or whatever because it's just not interesting enough. There's not enough going on, right? The, 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 it just feels too studio or whatever. I like I these B ones because they're more unique and interesting and they're doing more stuff. And I get what they mean. I don't agree. But I get what they mean because it's like at the time this would have these were B pictures, but they were able to do more uh, like be more. I hate to say creative, but what I mean is transcend. They transcend their B status by nature of the filmmakers and the actors creativity. Yeah, exactly. You got it. But what what I hate about that mentality, though, I tend to agree with a lot of the B movies. I'm like, yeah, these are awesome. Like you couldn't do this back then, but they just let them do whatever they wanted because they just gave them some money and a few cameras, you know. And so and a lot of times their history is so interesting. But when I think of a movie like Casablanca, which I'm not calling a film noir at all, but I'm just saying like movies like this or any of the big movies of that time, I hate when people just brush them off because there's nothing particularly unique happening in terms of on the surface. Do you follow what I mean by that? No. I, okay, I know exactly. Because what? it's almost like someone would say, well, it's just another Western. That they tend to... You got it. That they too much think that all noirs are variations on three themes. I have the antidote, the antidote, anecdote, antidote to that. Um I watched it again just a couple of weeks ago. It's called Force of Evil. Oh, yeah. That's and, hard to find unless you have the DVD, to be honest. It's been out of print for a while. Yeah, and um, and that's a shame because not only do I love it, because you want to talk about, about a film that uh, has a seedy underbelly and an amazing John Garfield performance, but um, so Scorsese, went, Scorsese went on and on when Raging Bull came out about how... Um, how much force of evil influenced raging bull specifically the re relationship between Jake and his brother. And you see that between John Garfield and um, Thomas Gomez, who gives this amazing performance as spoiler alert, 
the doomed brother. But <laughs> again, if you were to dismiss that, oh, it's another B noir, you're you're missing a formative movie-going experience. You're missing what engaged screenwriters, directors, and actors can do with a piece of material like that. Yeah, and speaking of John Garfield, just to go on a caveat here, uh, The Breaking Point is so great, by the way. A second-to-last film. I don't know oh, if you've seen that. Oh, yeah. That's an underrated. Like, no one talks about this movie, and I just love it as a noir. Anyways, so, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I bring all that up to say, like, with Casablanca, I feel like a lot of people treat that that way that I know where they're just like, oh, it's just like some studio picture. It's another Western, so to speak. That's not literal, but you know what I mean. And it's often pigeonholed as just a romance. I know the music box, the happiest place on earth, shows it every Valentine's Day. <laughs> so yeah. there you go. It's but, a romance. But it is. it has so much more, I think, uh, to offer. And I'm glad that you chose it because you have... This, like, again, gorgeous cinematography, these incredibly photogenic faces that you could just paste on your wall. Uh, I mean, there's just so much to it. And um, when I think of it, I think of the visuals, which is why I'm bringing it up. You bring up some great points about, uh, you know, the subtext of the narrative uh, of the film, what it's really saying. I think it's a great pick. I'm going to go ahead and move on, though, uh, to to my second pick here, because uh, I got away from it there. Uh, my second pick is uh, just so happens to be my favorite comedy of all time. We've talked about this long form uh, on on the podcast when we talked about separating the art from the artist. So there's a controversy okay. here, uh, but it's Woody Allen's Annie Hall from 1977, uh, written uh, again. We've talked about this on the episode, but it was you know written by uh, Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman. Uh, I mean, the cast is crazy. Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, Tony Robbins, or Roberts, <laughs> very different movie. Uh, <laughs> but Tony Roberts with bit roles by Christopher Walken, Carol Kane, uh, Shelley Duvall, Paul Simon, Jeff Goldblum, and so many more. Um, I'm not going to go into too much of it because we've talked about it long form, but this it's less about what I expect comedies to be when I talk about Annie Hall. It's more about how it made me think about comedy differently, if that makes sense. It actually flipped the lens around almost when I first saw this because I had no idea what to expect. And quite frankly, at the time, I really liked newer movies. And so even going back to the 70s, I still liked a lot of those movies, but it was like Godfather, Taxi Driver, you know, like, you know, Deer Hunter because there's a cool Russian roulette scene. Like that was my point in my journey, right? Um, I like to think that I have uh, I've progressed since then, but still... You know, it, watching Annie Hall just killed me. He does that little that little story at the end where uh, you know he he tells the the funny joke about uh, taking his brother. His brother believes he's a chicken, and he takes him to the doctor. Uh, you know, and it's this whole thing of like, you know, why don't you give him some help? It's like, well, we need the eggs, dude. In content, that line is silly. It doesn't matter. You could tell that story, and it won't do anything. But when you think of it in the context of that film every single time, even the last time I watched it when we did it for this podcast, like a few months ago, chills. It makes me tear yes. up. Like the end of this movie is so there's like a bitter sweetness to it, but it just moves me. And I had never seen and, a good. And, and, the, and the joke at the beginning too, yes. that the food here is so terrible <laughs> and such small portions. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it bookends so well with these ideas and he uses these uh, funny little anecdotes and these jokes to kind of get really serious points across. I had never thought of 
comedy like this. Again, dumb and dumber, guys. That was my, I, like, I that like, was the thing. I like what you said about how different it is from other comedies, because I know by that point in his career, it's one of the few Hollywood comedies that's not slavishly going for the punchline all the time. Yeah. And very often is willing to let the punchlines fall where they may. The scene that comes to mind is when he and Annie have that wonderful weekend um, out on Montauk with the lobsters. Yeah. And then later we see him trying to recreate it with another woman, almost She's like so that, that, that scene in Groundhog Day. And it obviously it doesn't work out. And that's that's so not jokey that the joke is in us recognizing that that's something that people do all the time. Yeah. Um, I give myself a lot of credit. I'm constantly patting myself on the back because in 1977, when Annie Hall came out, I was 15. I had just started high school. I had never kissed a girl and I went to see Annie Hall and it, it made my brain explode. Wow. Yeah. And when I, when I look back, I'm amazed at how much of it I was able to digest and comprehend. Um, and it makes me feel like I was a pretty sophisticated 15 year old. Um, there's a wonderful book that I would recommend to your listeners. I think it's still in print, but even if it's out of print, it should be pretty easy to get a copy. It's called when the shooting stops, the cutting begins by Ralph Rosenbaum and Ralph Rosenbaum is an editor and Ralph Rosenbaum edited Annie Hall and Ralph Rosenbaum worked on Annie Hall when it was called Anhedonia and it was a very, very different movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he and Woody Allen basically restructured the film and used the relationship with Annie as the through line because yeah. the original film had more tangents. It was sort of the life of a stand-up comedian. And interestingly enough, I think a lot of what I like about the film is – from when it was more of a tapestry, like when it suddenly becomes animation yeah, and, and she's the wicked queen that I think the original script uh, that I believe he wrote with Marshall Brickman had a lot more tangents like that. And so they were looking at this beast that was sort of about so many things. It was about nothing. And the genius idea was, well, it's the relationship with Diane Keaton. That's the through line. And that's what, gave us the film that we have now. Yeah. But he talks about that in great detail. There's a chapter on that. And there's an, also a chapter on how he saved Mel Brooks as the producers <laughs> because Ralph Rosenbaum edited that too back when that was Mel Brooks's first film. And he wasn't quite as adept at, you know, matching action and all that yeah. stuff. It was more of a photograph stage play. And Rosenbaum was central to the success of that film too. I love the producers also, by the way, that is a movie. Oh, I, I just watched that a couple of weeks ago and was amazed at how well that movie holds up. It's so good. Yeah. I, I, Cause I hadn't seen it until less than 10 years ago. And when I first watched it, I thought this would just be an early movie by this guy. It won't be like his like good stuff or whatever, man. I, that's one of my favorites. I, I love it. No, um, with with Annie Hall, I mean, you really touched on parts of it too. I I had never seen a movie, and movies have come out to do this since. 
oh my God, I mean, how influential was this? I could just start naming movies that are essentially this movie with either a different ending, like When Harry Met Sally, or, you know, something yes. like uh, something like um, High Fidelity, which is not a direct, but you can see the influence of him looking back on these relationships and trying to learn something. There, uh, I mean, 500 Days of Summer, any of these movies, you can start to see the influences of Annie Hall, and there's so many more. And The, the Marshall McLuhan scene oh. in... Annie Hall, so which great. I love. You have my entire fallacy wrong. How you got to teach anything is a mystery to me. The Marshall McLuhan scene in Annie Hall is the Bruce Springsteen scene in High Fidelity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's just it's unbelievable how influential it was, but almost like, you know, maybe a good Bob Dylan track that was later played by someone else and is now known as the someone else's song. Um, you know, <laughs> like those types of things. I feel like a lot of the stuff in Annie Hall, a lot of people just either don't remember or haven't seen it. And uh, this movie still, to this day, uh, I feel like you still see those influences. But b- beyond that, though, I had never seen a movie, a comedy in particular, that had like, uh, you know, a cartoon sequence that had these specific types of flashbacks that they have. The split screen where people are talking to each other through the split screen, the Marshall McLuhan scene, which you brought up where you actually bring the person out. And it's more of this like wishful or like this this daydream of like, this is what I wish could happen in life. Of course, you know, Woody Allen at the very end of that scene says, uh, you know, something about like, wouldn't this be great if this is just how it was, you know, like uh, and it's it's just so great. And honestly, it's. It was the first time I'd watched a comedy like this where it just ripped my heart out and I was happy about it. Does that make sense? Don't forget, don't forget that great subtitling sequence where what they're thinking is on screen. I wonder what she looks like (coughs) naked. Yeah, dude. Oh, I got some Annie Hall trivia for you. Sure. Gary Mule Deer. Oh, God. Gary Mule Deer was a second tier stand up comic in the 70s and 80s, and he's featured as an extra. In Annie Hall, in the scene where they break up in L.A., he's at the table behind them, and you can see Gary Muldeer talking to his date. And uh, Woody Allen wrote him a line, but then later mixed it out of the mix because he felt it stepped on the scene between him and Annie. And Gary Muldeer was once on a talk show and revealed what his one line in Annie Hall was. And if they had just turned up that one microphone... We would have heard, I'm not making this up. This was the actual line. Gary Mule Deer was supposed to say to his date, what he does is he vomits on stage, urinates on stage, and then electrocutes a goat. I call it total rock theater. (laughs) And if you watch the film, look behind Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. You can actually make it out that that's what he's saying. You can watch his mouth movements, especially at the end, total rock theater. You can see it. That's that was so his good. line. And, and, and it was a great cut, I feel like, because that scene is so like so meaningful. If you had this goat murder via electrocution from yeah, it, it, this it, doesn't, it doesn't belong at all. <clears throat> no. Uh, so basically, Annie Hall was just, uh, much like Amelie, it was the first... Comedy that I'd ever seen that had that level of imagination, and and another thing I love, and maybe others would disagree, maybe even you would, uh, but there are other Woody Allen movies where he gets so like that kind of faux intellectualism that he brings into a lot of his dialogue, 
And Annie Hall, it feels very much a part of Alvy, the character, unless the movie trying to be smart. Do you get what no, I mean? That's a good point. Whereas, no, like, I think really some of point. his other ones, sometimes it's like almost like he's caricaturing himself, you know? But Annie Hall's that perfect mix where even if you don't get all the Jackson Pollock jokes or the, the philosophy jokes or whatever, even if you don't get them, there's one, because of the execution and delivery, a lot of times it's still funny because I don't even get all the jokes still to this day. But it, it makes me laugh because of the context and what they're doing. But a lot of times they can also just be throwaways. Just he says something and moves on. And if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. And that's something I put a lot on comedies, too, because I feel like a lot of modern day comedies, there's someone sets someone up, someone does a punchline or a gag of some sort, and then there's a break for laughter. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you oh, feel definitely. this kind of writing and structure. And the thing I love about, you know, Annie Hall or a lot of the Woody Allen movies or a lot of the people that have kind of done movies like this is uh, often it's just kind of like you either got to keep up or you got to go. You know what I mean? And um, <laughs> I just I just really love this type of humor. Uh, of course, this is my favorite comedy ever made. So um, that's my number two. I, I don't think I would see film the same way without this movie. What's your number three, buddy? And my number three, by way of segue, is also a comedy, but a very different comedy. And it's a film that I showed in film study class for 34 years, the other films on the syllabus might change and drop out and reappear, but this damn thing was never not a part of my class. How's that for a double negative? The film is called Singing in the Rain. Nice. And it's a little musical you may have heard of. But I say that because I've done a lot of research on this film, and it turns out that Singing in the Rain was virtually ignored when it was released because an American in Paris had come out the year before, won all the Oscars, got all the acclaim, and then Gene Kelly made his masterpiece. Yeah. I don't know what you think of an American in Paris. I, I will let anyone think whatever they want about American in Paris, but it ain't Singing in the Rain. It ain't Singing in the um, Rain. American in Paris... American in Paris is trying very hard to be respectable American art. And I think in retrospect, it comes across as a little pompous. But anyway, Singing in the Rain is a masterpiece by any standard. Uh, it was directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan because Kelly had a very hard time appearing in the film and directing it. Although later, Stanley Donan would certainly acquit himself. Donan became a terrific director of yeah. his own right even though when he did sing in the rain, he was very, very young. Uh, it cost two and a half million. It grossed seven, which uh, in today's dollars would be 74 million. And of course it was written by the incomparable uh, Betty Comden and Adolph Green. And it doesn't get better than that. Apparently uh, they went around at the MGM studios and asked old timers for stories about what happened when silent films became sound and they incorporated some of those anecdotes into the film. Originally, Howard Keel was supposed to star in this film and he was supposed to be a silent cowboy star who then becomes a singing cowboy star when sound comes in, but Keel was unavailable and so Gene Kelly uh, took the part and it was sort of tailored for him. Uh, so one, you get this case of Hollywood looking back on itself and um, 
And I always think that's interesting. Movies about how movies are made are usually interesting. But uh, because I showed it in class for so long, over three decades, um, I got to experience the full force of what young people think of musicals. And they don't like them. <laughs> they don't like them at all. Even though, and this was the irony, they all had a, a, a warm spot in their hearts for Disney movies that they saw as children, but maybe because it's animated, they couldn't make the leap that those are really, really terrific musicals too. Maybe because it's animated, they put it in a different category because obviously it's a cartoon, it's not real. Young people do not like musicals because young people watch movies for one reason, the plot. And in musicals, the plot stops about every 10 minutes so that people can sing and dance. And then the plot starts up again and um, they find that very hard to sit through. Um, maybe because they're so entrenched in their own musical style, when you're young, I think the music you listen to is very much part of your personality. And if I'm into heavy metal, Gene Kelly singing, you were made for me just isn't gonna do it. That might be part of it. But as I taught and taught and taught, and aged and aged and aged. I thought there might be something else to this. And I began to think that my students had that sort of tragic hipness of uh, American teenagers, and that maybe they weren't rejecting the music or the movie. They were rejecting the notion that life can be an adventure and that romantic love was possible that singing in the rain presents a worldview that's very optimistic and beautiful. And they were sort of rejecting it like a bad kidney. Well, that ain't what life is like. Well, maybe if you were a little happier and maybe if you were a little hopeful, maybe life could be, no, life is shit and then you die. This is the stance that we were told <laughs> to take as American teenagers. Um, and so, I thought maybe it was a problem with ideology that they just saw it as hopelessly sugary or saccharine and not as this beautiful thing to which we can aspire to. Certainly, I want my life to be an adventure. And I know that romantic love is possible, but don't listen to me. I'm an old man. Um, what helped me, and I think helped my students, is I stumbled upon this essay which I'm recommending to all your listeners. I think you can find it pretty easily on the internet machine. It's called Entertainment and Utopia by Richard Dyer. And this is the reason why Singing in the Rain changed the way I look at movies. Dyer suggests that people who go to movies to see a simulacra of real life are hit in the head by musicals because musicals are not trying to show us real life. Dyer's thesis is that they're trying to show us a perfect world. They're trying to show us a utopia. And because of that, Dyer came up with a system where a perfect world, according to him, would be comprised of five things. And those five things, hold on, it's been a while. I'm doing this from memory. Are abundance, you would always have enough. Community, you would always feel wanted. Intensity, you would always feel every emotion completely, no wiffle waffle. Um, transparency, everyone would be honest with each other. 
completely honest. There would be no lying. And um, energy, you would never be tired. You would always have enough pep to do whatever you wanted. So those are the five categories. And he suggests that every musical number in every musical ever made can be put into those five categories. That not only is the film itself trying to show you a perfect world, but it's trying to demonstrate that the five things you need for a perfect world are the things that these musical numbers are actually about. And that made my brain explode. And I set about teaching that to young people for 30 years. That is interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, when I was <clears throat> a slight caveat again, when I was in Wes Gearing's class, which I know that you're familiar with the name at the very least, I don't know if you ever met Wes, but uh, when Gearing's class, he would always try to show stuff that he thought still fit the content, but that his students would at least be able to grasp onto a bit because the stuff he would want to show was like these 1930s comedies that no one was going to get or, you know, like these random movies. And and he would <laughs> even show something that he thought was, or at least that I thought was more accessible than some of the other stuff he would do, something like the major and the minor, you know, the Billy Wilder. Like that is not going over with a millennial crowd. Okay, <laughs> I wouldn't think that um, it would. But I remember him showing that one time, but he showed Chinatown. That bombed. And I was like, dude, I get that it might be slow for some of you, but like, how did that bomb? So anyways, but he showed Chaplin. And in multiple classes, he showed, I mean, we watched The Circus, we watched Gold Rush, we watched City Lights, we watched Modern Times. Over a course of different, uh, or over the span of different courses, we watched multiple. Uh, he'd show shorts sometimes, some of the, the, the short comedies. Everyone loved Chaplin. He was like oh, this yeah. universal comedy that even to this day, people can enjoy. And sometimes it blows my mind that I would think without sound, without talking and stuff, that would really get to people. And it does at first, but whenever you have someone like Chaplin, they can really pull you out of it. I look at Gene Kelly, and I'm like, by the way, his birthday is on uh, August 23rd, so it's just, uh, it'd be the day before this drops. So, you know, happy birthday to, to Gene. Happy but, birthday, Gene. Yeah, but Gene Kelly is a masterful performer. To Like, to the extent that even if you don't like the plot stopping and you don't like dancing to occur, this guy should be able to chaplainize that and make you love it because he's that good. I can't imagine someone being bored watching Gene Kelly dancing. What the fuck, JB? <laughs> and he, he, later, he later proved that he didn't even have to be dancing because if you watch Inherit the Wind, Kelly plays the H.L. Mencken character, and he's astoundingly good in that. Uh, in a role that was begun on Broadway by Tony Randall, by the way. Um, I, too, showed Chaplin um, most years and usually showed the kid. And my students were always very surprised how moved they could be yeah. by this very old silent film. The other thing I remember about Chaplin in class was I had a lot of students uh, for whom English was not their first language. Oh, yeah. And they really, really loved the fact that silent films did not have to, you know, take advantage of, of their sort of uh, their on-the-fly translation skills. Um, the worst, the, the, the other thing I love about Singing in the Rain is there's a villain, uh, Lena Lamont, this big Hollywood star who's all full of herself, and it's a wonderful performance by Gene Hagen. And... 
Singing in the Rain presents a world that's so wonderful that when the villain finally is exposed, the worst thing that happens is she's laughed at. <laughs> you know, yeah. she doesn't fall off a cliff. She's not set on fire. She doesn't go to prison for 50 years. An audience full of people laughs at her. Speaking of which, um, here's a great uh, inside story. Um, one of my first laser discs, that's how old I am. <laughs> I collected laser discs, uh, was singing in the rain with an amazing commentary track by Ron Haver. There's a scene in singing in the rain where Debbie Reynolds is recording all of Lena's songs because of course, Lena can't sing and has a voice that's grating and awful. And she's shown recording this song and then they play it back for Lena and then Lena lip syncs it in the film. And then we think we're watching Debbie Reynolds singing for Gene Hagen. Um, if you gave me a second, the song is called, Would You? He'll kiss me with a sigh, would you, would you? And that's what we think we're watching. But Kelly and Donan didn't think Debbie Reynolds' voice was good for that song. It just didn't match. So when you watch that sequence, Debbie Reynolds records it. They put it on a record. Gene Hagen listens to it. And then she later lip syncs to it. It's actually Gene Hagen singing the song. Debbie Reynolds is lip syncing because Gene Hagen uses a trick voice in the movie. She uses a character voice. That's Gene Hagen's real singing voice. And one of the reasons why it looks so good when we see it on the screen is that it's her. <laughs> so that's a little inside joke in Singing in the Rain. No, I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, that man, you are hitting a lot of movies that are just, I literally have a list of uh, different lists. Like that's on my musical list of stuff I just got to either rewatch. A lot of this stuff I also saw either on television, which doesn't count, you know, like, you know, like to an extent, you know what I mean? Because there's commercial breaks and all this, you know, like a lot of this stuff. I saw that way, or uh, in the case of Sing in the Rain, I saw it begrudgingly uh, the first time with uh, my uh, aunts uh, at their house, and all they ever watched were these old, uh, you know, s musicals, and all I wanted as a as a kid was, uh, you know, to watch, you know, Batman or something. I don't know, but uh, and you know, I obviously, TCM shows the movies uncut, but for the longest time, whenever you would catch singing in the rain on commercial TV, they would cut a musical number out of it because it doesn't advance the story. And I obviously I'm very familiar with the film. I showed it to students for 34 years. The number that was often cut was Moses supposes, which is not only one of the most delightful. It's when Gene Kelly goes to the speech coach and they're saying all these nonsensical things. Not only is it one of the, the great numbers in the movie, not that there's a bad one, but, Singing in the Rain was made to use the songbook of Arthur Freed and Nacio Herb Brown. They had written all these songs in the 30s, and MGM wanted to use them in a movie, and Betty Comden and Off Green didn't think they sounded contemporary, and that's the reason they set the movie in the past, so that the songs would sort of go along with it. Um, the other problem with cutting out Moses Supposes is that it's the one song in the movie that wasn't written by Arthur Freed and Nacio Herb Brown. That was written for the movie by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. So show Moses Supposes. Don't cut. Don't cut it out. God, God forbid. What are you people thinking? You know, I, I'm so happy that you have a musical as your number three, because if you can believe it, JB, I have a musical for my number three. <laughs> 
But unfortunately, this continues in the progress because you went from comedy to another comedy that was also a musical. I'm going from a comedy that's also a musical to a musical that is a terrible, terrible tragedy. And that is Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark from the year 2000. Um, It's uh, written and directed by Lars von Trier. Cast was uh, Bjork... Uh, who basically said she would never act in a movie again after this experience. There's There are just sirens going off uh, near my home. Anyways, so Bjork's in it. The great Catherine Deneuve. Uh, Umbrella's a Cherbourg. We covered on the on here at one point. Um, David Morse, uh, Peter Stormare, and Joel Grey has a little uh, cameo in it. There's It's just, it's a wild movie. Uh, it was released October 6, 2000 with a budget of $12.5 million. Box office was surprisingly to me actually because this sound this seems like something that would have just completely failed to me even though I love it uh, but 45.6 million so I mean it definitely multiplied its own uh, especially for uh, turn of the millennium and I mean this thing won 39 of its 45 nominations for multi- a variety of awards right it got um, a lot of award nominations yeah 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 and so um, if you haven't seen this movie it's a real bummer and I just want to say this real quick. Uh, Bjork basically plays a mother whose son is starting to suffer from the same eye disease that she has. And uh, if she raises enough money through work and doing extra uh, jobs and different things, you're selling candy or something, whatever she sells, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, at work outside of that to raise enough money to get her son this uh, this surgery at a young age then he'll be able to see fine and not go through the same thing that Bjork's going through her character, uh, Selma. And Selma is slowly going blind. Uh, She's losing her sight uh, due to this disease. And uh, it's awesome because all of the... For people that don't like the spontaneous musicals, this was the first movie... That uh, where I felt like the musical sequences made sense because they're all in her daydreams. In those mm. moments, we see her right. mind. Right? There's everything else is super, like he's going for super realism here. Right? Like the gritty camera work. I mean, this guy was one of the two uh, guys who brought us Dogma '95. Granted, this isn't a Dogma '95 film, but it's very gritty. It's very stripped down. And then you get these musical sequences that are clearly shot on like camcorders or something, and they're much cleaner than the rest of the film because you get that gritty film uh, look on the uh, for the rest of the film. But these musical sequences are great, and then it changes. Yeah, and 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 everybody sings with their real voice. So some people just sound like shit, and that's just how it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> like David Morse does not sound good, and neither does Peter Stormare. But you know what? Like, it fits the movie, and it is a real, real tragedy. And the the reason I put this on my list is because for a long time, this was the bar set for emotional depth and resonance. And this is the movie that basically made me rethink all of those movies I grew up watching that made me feel something. My spectrum was only a few inches, you know, tall. And watching Dance in the Dark, it widened that spectrum quite a bit. Where those movies that were only the in the little center, once it broadened, they weren't nearly as impactful for me. This was the movie that established the lens of, if you want to make me feel something, you're going to fucking work for it now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to take this cheap bullshit. You know, I might still have fun with it, but it's like, 
I want this. Now, I haven't watched Dancer in the Dark in um, a few years. It hasn't been that long. I would love to rewatch it. I'm at that point where I want to rewatch it and kind of update that opinion and see how effective, because every time I've seen it, it hits me. The, the final scene, which I won't spoil for people who haven't seen it, the final moment right before it cuts to credits uh, breaks me. I mean, every time. Yeah. Not to tears, because it's it's like too sad. Like, the movie is so, so sad that I don't even feel like crying. I just have this feeling in my chest and in my stomach, the pit of my stomach, where it's just like, this is tragic. This is the no, definition exactly of tragedy. exactly what you're saying. And, uh, yeah, so Dancer in the Dark really made me rethink, because a, a very important thing to me is a movie, I want a movie to make me feel something, even if it pisses me off, just make me feel something, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it can be, like, uh, humor, you know, it can make me, uh, it can make me feel sad, it can make me happy, it can make me angry, like, whatever it is, just make me feel something, and it surprises me how, like, hard it is for a lot of movies to do that anymore but i i watched this and this is kind of the movie that first raised that or like broadened that spectrum of like okay you have to try harder now because i've experienced something that so affected my my innards you know <laughs> like that just really broke me that i i'm not just gonna get away like movies aren't just gonna get away with this kind of uh oscar bait tearjerker shit <laughs> give me like i want real feelings what do you think about this and you said obviously dancer in the dark is a musical but i would argue um i think i like it as much as, as you like it it's an amazing film um it might be my favorite lars von trier film um that obviously it's a musical but i would argue it's co-opting things from the musical because of what it actually is is an ironic musical of which there are far fewer films and i'm thinking i'm thinking dancer in the dark and i immediately jump to the singing detective and then that takes me to pennies from heaven which is an amazing underappreciated film and then because i could only think of four dancer in the dark singing detective pennies from heaven and a film that was on cable last night romance and cigarettes Wow. Yeah. John Turturro made a musical. I remember. I haven't seen it, but a very I know what you're talking odd about. musical with James Gandolfini and Susan Sarandon and Christopher Walken and Kate Winslet. And it's all about what real life is like. And um, the musical numbers are a mix of people singing and people singing along to the radio. Um, a long time ago, I wrote a column about this film and suggested people watch it just because it's so different than anything you'd expect from anyone who's in it or John Turturro. And um, Patrick, who's in charge of the site, you know, goes on the Twitter machine and tries to get us some attention. And Mandy Moore, who's in the film, responded to the tweet and talked about how much fun it was because it was her first movie. Um, she's in the movie with Bobby Cannavale. Um, and they're sort of the young lovers. And what? I got to say, if Dancer in the Dark strikes you as unique, and it is, but you love it, I suggest you run right out and see Pennies from Heaven, Singing Detective, and Romance and Cigarettes, because they're all in the same backyard. They're all in the same general vicinity of a film that uses the tropes of the musical against itself. Yeah. 
You know, there's there's another uh, th- now. These are different, I admit, but uh, a lot of Bob Fosse's musicals from the '70s. Um, they're, I, and they're I, not. That's an excellent point, yeah, especially all that jazz, which is oh my god, all that jazz. I uh, Cabaret I saw in one of Gehring's classes too, which didn't go over great. But to me, I was like, dude, this like all the musical sequences are done in a cabaret on stage. Like it is yeah. not just breaking into song. Like this, no, it's, this it's an hat, amazing film. It's so great. And so, like, I really started gravitating toward those. And and what it did was, uh, especially after taking genres courses and reading and looking into history, like, it really started helping me segment how different films are. So, for example, you might have something like, you know, in, in, in martial arts films, like the genre of, like, Hong Kong martial arts movies or something. You know, the, the focus, the reason why a lot of times their stories are completely convoluted and ridiculous or they're really cheesy or the music sucks or the editing's whatever is because it's all about the martial arts. That is first and foremost, they are, that's why choreographers are so highly regarded in that genre because that is the first and foremost premier focus. All of these other things then take priority beneath. Uh, so when I watch something like Legend of Drunken Master, the, the Jackie Chan movie, I'm looking for those martial arts sequences, and then after that, I'm also looking for all the other really brilliant little moments that he that he puts in. And that's what makes martial arts films the closest in spirit to musicals. You're getting because to my point, the yeah. fights, the the fights and the songs, it's the exact same thing. <laughs> that's why we're there. Um, all that jazz says to you, "Oh, you like musicals," and then makes you choke on it. <laughs> I actually watched that for the first time with Jake in a class. He and I were sitting next to each other when we watched that movie, if I remember correctly. No, uh, but all of those movies, you know, now I look at, you know, uh, when I look at the old, like, for example, your pick Singing in the Rain or Sound of Music or any of those classics, I think of them like those martial arts movies, right? Like, hey, don't just look at them as like modern day movies. Don't just put them up against something new. Watch them for what they are. Look like look at the brilliant talent that is involved in these movies before you just throw them away. But the thing is, I was the person you're talking about, your students. I was the person that thought those were stupid in large part probably because of being at my aunt's house, you know, and, and having to watch <laughs> the stupid shit that I hated. Uh, but I think I think the key is like Dancer in the Dark made me think differently about genre altogether. So my lens on genre was formed by, in large part, Dancer in the Dark uh, that goes for Westerns. Like, I used to not like Westerns, too, until I started, I think, maybe something like um, uh, Unforgiven was a big one, and uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Both of those made me rethink Westerns, and then I went back to Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, you know, and so on, and I started seeing all because these little the, subgenres. The first two, the first two are both ironic Westerns. I'm going to get a needlepoint sampler made in a little round frame that says <laughs> everything is stupid at your aunt's house austin glidden <laughs> dude they were so dumb like as a kid i just didn't get it you know <laughs> i just didn't get it i would probably love it and i would love to go into someone's house and then watch some classic musicals i would i would just sit down and like hang out and do it but anyways uh but that's my yeah that's my number three dancer in the dark uh really really kind of critical in my and kind of the broadening of my cinematic journey and uh, and that lens that I look through. What, what's your what's your number four? My number four is the film you may have heard of, although for 30 years my students had never heard of it. <laughs> oh, my, were they in for something. 
Um, the film is called The Searchers. It was directed by John Ford. Uh, it had a budget of $3.5 <laughs> million. It grossed $4.8 million, which is astounding to me yeah. um, that it didn't make more. And that's $1956, um, too, you know? like, yes. But that's still not great. Like, because you think no, of no, a movie no. that's like a classic, and I would think The Searchers is a bona fide classic. It, it, but you think it of that and you go, yeah, you think of that and you just go, wow, not only was this a classic now, but that was a John Ford movie with John Wayne. I think it underperformed at the time, and then later it was rediscovered on television. I know that my students came in with all sorts of notions of what a Western was. Or maybe no notion of what a Western was, or a notion from other Westerns, or maybe what their father had told them. But when I started showing the searchers in class, when you've taught film for long enough, you develop an ability to sort of take the pulse of the room. And while the film is playing, you can sort of tell how it's going. Yeah. And no movie I ever showed had the reaction that the searchers did and i mean in a positive way really they found it they found it riveting they thought it was going to be this guys in hats shooting at each other and my students who were not dumb quickly seized on the fact that what this film is about is racism and as i said earlier in terms of casablanca the searchers has a lot to say about how one should choose to live one's life. So John Wayne gets all the attention because he certainly gives the performance of the film. It's it's the best performance he ever gave. But I think people make the mistake of thinking that The Searchers is about Ethan Edwards, the John Wayne character, and it is not. Ethan Edwards exists to show us something. The film is about Marty. Um the uh, Jeffrey Hunter character yeah. who throughout the film is presented with a variety of ways for him to live his life. We see the film through Marty's eyes. And at the end of the film, Marty makes a decision that will benefit him in that we've been shown that there's no way there's any peace or happiness for John Wayne. Uh, earlier, John Wayne says that this Native American spirit is uh, fated to walk between the winds. And as the film goes on, we realize he's really talking about himself because there's nowhere for that man to reach safe harbor. Yeah. Um, he is so full of hatred and bile. Um, and although that makes for an interesting hero because he's a man of action and he yeah. does a lot of of, of worthwhile things. Um, it's certainly not a recipe for how one is to live one's life. Um, my favorite story about how art influences other art is that the searchers opens in 1956 and a young buddy Holly goes to see the movie. And he's very taken with the fact that every time, uh, every time John Wayne is confronted you know, Ethan, one of these days, or Ethan, we're going to take you out back and give you... Every time John Wayne is confronted with information he doesn't like, his famous response is, well, that'll be the day. Yeah. And Buddy Holly thinks that's the greatest line he's ever heard and writes the song, that'll be the day. That's great. That was the direct influence on Buddy Holly. 
Um, beautiful Vista Vision uh, cinematography. I know Martin Scorsese is a big fan and says Hollywood never had a format that was as beautiful as Vista Vision. He's a big fan of Vista Vision and The Searchers, in fact, is in Vista Vision. Of course, he photographed it in Monument Valley, which was his his favorite location. Too, yeah. um, the film has a lot to say about how anger can fester and ruin your life. Um, it has amazing performances by John Wayne, Jeffrey Hunter, Harry Carey Jr.'s in it, Ward Bond. Ward Bond, who I call the luckiest man on earth. Yeah. Because he was such a popular character actor, if you look at like the list of the AFI 100 greatest films, he's in like 35 of them. Dude. Just because he was, I mean, he's in It's a Wonderful Life. He's in The Searchers. He's in this. He's in that. He's in everything. Um, John Whalen doing his standard uh, Swedish immigrant. And of course, Natalie Wood as young Debbie, uh, who the entire plot revolves around. Um a pioneer family is beset by Native Americans uh, who uh, murder some people and burn down the homestead and kidnap young Debbie. And the entire film is about a young uh, is about a small band of men trying to get her back. And um, every scene is great. Every scene is well directed. Um, I I think it might be one of the five greatest films ever made. But again, as you earlier said on the podcast, I think the fact that it's a Western keeps people from actually appreciating what it is. Because yeah. in an odd way, it's not a Western at all. Um, it's another stringent moral tale that is dressed up as a Western to entertain us. Yeah. You know, this guy, Ward Bond, because I remember I, I watched and talked about on the podcast the Maltese Falcon. He's also in that. Yeah. So he gets to work with him. He worked with Fritz Lang on uh, Fury in 1936, maybe another one I haven't gotten there yet. He was in Bringing Up Baby. Uh, this dude was in tons of John Ford movies. This guy was he's in, in every. He's in everything. everything. And I didn't even think of that until you just said that. I'm like, yeah, I've seen him in so much. He's in It's a Wonderful Life. He, I mean, just everything. Uh, that he guy's might great. just be—he might just be the <laughs> one actor who's in more classic films than any other actor, just because he works so much. And in his last film was Rio Bravo. What the fuck, this guy? Okay. Anyways, so um, yeah, I just don't think of I when you said the name, I'm like, I know Ward Bond. Yeah, of course. Like he's great, but he's just one of those actors that, like I just forget about until I see him again. You know what I mean? It's like ah. He's Bert, so he's Bert the cop in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I want to bring something up because I don't know if I've ever talked about John Ford on the podcast very at least to uh, to at length. Uh, I'm looking really forward to seeing some of the John Ford stuff I haven't seen, uh, namely uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And I'm going to be watching these with my grandfather who's obsessed with westerns, and, uh, you know, he's living with my father now. Uh, you know, he's in his 80s, but I was like, hey, I'm going to go to my dad's. I'm going to watch some Westerns with my grandpa. You know what I mean? Like that's so I have a whole list. I have like 30 of them. You know what I mean? The and, Man and, Who Child Liberty Valance is a masterpiece. Well, I the reason I'm really excited about that is and I'm going to clarify because uh, I feel like this is one of those things you say and then people jump all over you. Though I appreciate John Ford's artistry because everything you said, I think his shots, that movie is beautiful. The Searchers, absolutely gorgeous. 
His storytelling is great. I love Kurosawa. Kurosawa is heavily influenced by John Ford, and you can see it, especially in uh, the scene where uh, John Wayne goes down into kind of like this little cove, but the camera stays up, and he finds his niece just massacred. But we never see that. We just see him come out at half speed, just looking completely devastated. That type of storytelling is something that really connects with me, and I think John Ford is a really great storyteller. I'll explain an issue I have, and I'm only going to explain it because I want to know how you feel about it. But, um, but yeah, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, any criticisms I have of John Ford that are personal criticisms, that is, because I really do think he's just one of the great filmmakers. It's just uh, he doesn't, maybe not my cup of tea all the time. But everyone's like, you have to see The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, though. It's not like the others. I think you'll really like this one. And I don't know what that means yet. And by the by, the look on your face, I don't know what that means yet. Maybe because I'm such a huge Jimmy Stewart fan and uh, and uh, not even a huge John Wayne, but he, man, he can be great in some like uh, The Searchers. Uh, I feel like I'm going to love it. I'm going into it expecting great things. We'll talk about that another time. The point is this. With John Ford, something that I really appreciate that John Ford, I don't think of John Ford whenever uh, I say this, is... That dude will go from homie just lost his niece who was massacred by Native Americans to a comical sequence where two men are fighting at a wedding. Yeah. I just cannot get down with the constant kind of comic relief or or so I I like the search. By the way, I'm using these as examples. The Searchers is actually my favorite John Ford film I've seen, by the way. So just to clarify, I, I really like The Searchers. But I would say this about uh, The Quiet Man or any other John Ford film I've seen. He often does this. Do you have any issue or, or, or do you at least even recognize or notice like these kind of like tonal shifts that he does a lot? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think I think the goofy fight at the wedding is well done. I do too. And I agree. I agree. It's a great it's a the shifting gears on a 10 ton Mack truck. But I think that comes from a tradition of a movie needing to be an evening's entertainment. And I think the Searcher's original audience being much more attuned to things like that happening. I think that was much more standard in Hollywood films yes. of, of the 50s. Um, but yeah, he that, that happens a lot. I'm thinking of um, the Hank Warden character who's sort of a half wit and he's constantly thanking people and he wants to sit in the rocking chair. And that comes across (laughs) as a, you know, that uh, we're, we're looking at murder and rape and then suddenly there's this half wit who wants a rocking chair. Yeah. Um, So yeah, in theory, I agree. When people were telling you that Liberty Valance was the different John Ford, I made that face that I made. (laughs) No, no, no. I made that face because I think the searchers is the different John Ford. The searchers is the, is the Western where Ford actually entertains the notion that maybe what the native Americans are doing is fine. Yeah. You know, that they're not presented as cardboard villains to be, to be uh, mowed down. Um, But I think what Liberty Valance is trying to do is very different. And it's not the searchers part two. It has other issues on its mind, specifically how legends are created. Yeah. And, and I think that's the way to go into that. You're, you're going to love it. I think I honestly will. There's, because because it, there's it, far less, there's far less inappropriate comic relief. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is with the searchers at the very least, 
the, his his type of storytelling really captures me, regardless of those moments that pull me out of it. But the wedding fight pulls me out of it, but it's still very well yeah. done. Like as an exclusive scene, I like that sequence, but it's like give me more of the thing. Um, but anyways, I think one, it's a, it's one a great of the, pick. Go ahead. One of the many reasons that you have to see Liberty Valance is that for at least two decades, bad comedians did John Wayne impressions where they use the word pilgrim. Well, that's the way it goes, pilgrim. The Man Shot Liberty Valance is the is the one movie where John Wayne actually says that he he always calls Jimmy Stewart pilgrim. So if you want to see where that ridiculous trope started, it's yeah. it's Liberty Valance. Yeah, I, I'm honestly excited about it. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm usually not hugely excited to watch John Ford movies, even though, like I said, in the end, I may it may not be like my cup of tea, but I can still watch. I usually, I'll start watching and I'll start picking out, like I said, the storytelling. Like I'll start really kind of picking out these things that make it really interesting to me. Um, and the way people talk about Liberty Valance, I'm really excited to tackle it, but I'm holding off on it until I can watch it with my grandpa. That's the whole point. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Any last uh, comments before I move on to my number two? When Martin Scorsese was teaching at NYU, John Ford and John Wayne were sort of out of favor among liberal arts students who are liberal. <laughs> and he knew it would be a fight to get them to watch The Searchers. So he would announce another film was being screened a film he knew would be popular with students. When the students got to the screening room, Scorsese would lock the doors, explain that the film he announced would be shown next week, but tonight they were watching The Searchers, and if anyone left the screening room, they would fail his class. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, because that whole generation of filmmakers love John Ford. I mean, all like Bogdanovich, Friedkin, like all those dudes... We're huge, no, huge they, fans, and and there's they an idolized ab- him. yeah, and there's an absolute reason for it. You know what I mean? So I don't mean to, uh, not that I'm afraid to badmouth him, but I don't want to. Like he is, he is a legend, you know, and and he influenced people, like I said, like Kurosawa, who are some of my favorites of all time, you know, um, and and you can see it. Uh, but we, we kind of talked about Jimmy Stewart and different things, and and I do want to bring up uh, that. Here's my segue to my number two, which is Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock, and this really could just be the Hitchcock slot. Uh, I could name multiple <laughs> movies, and my last two choices are that, pretty much. I, I didn't cheat enough where I at least gave a title, but it could be pretty much anything by this person. Because when, I'm, when I explain to you why Rear Window, it could be Rope, it could be Lifeboat, it could be like <laughs> like any series of like experimental films that he made. Uh, but this is, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written uh, by John Michael Hayes and Cornell Woolrich. It uh, stars Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, and Thelma Ritter. Thelma Ritter's so great. Uh, it was released oh, September yeah. 1st, 1954, a budget of $1 million, dude. That's ins- He was so good. Like, no the wonder he's on the screen. No, yeah, exactly. No wonder the studios loved him because he'd pick these movies like Rear Window where it all takes place in a fucking room and all they have to do is basically build a dollhouse <laughs> set for him. You know what I mean? Where he can just It was look a beautiful out. set. It was a beautiful set. Gorgeous. Hitch- yeah. Hitchcock used to bring people to the soundstage and show off the set. He was so proud of it. It's so great. It is so great. Uh, but this movie for a $1 million budget made $36.8 million. And this is 1954 money. All right. 1954 is a great year, too. We could do a whole podcast on that. But the point is, uh, s- storytelling and limitations. 
I love a good experiment. Is Rope a phenomenal film from beginning to end, looking at it outside of his experiment? I might say maybe, but I am a huge fan of experiments. All right. And mm. whenever he in Rope, whenever he tries to make it all one shot, yes, that limits him. And yes, maybe his storytelling could be better told with other things, but that's the gimmick. And I love the gimmick. And I think it enhances it in some way, in the same way that the film noir Lady in the Lake, which is not great. But the point is, it's awesome because it's all first person. Oh, <laughs> I love the gimmick in Lady in the Lake. Yeah, it's so... We need more Lady in the Lake. Yeah, I, I, I love that idea. I, I'm a big sucker for people back in the studio era, that, that kind of production code era, doing experimental things like this. I'm just a sucker. Rear Window, less maybe experimental than something like a rope or a lifeboat. You know, lifeboats literally people on a raft and the whole movie is that. Like, how do you make that interesting? This motherfucker does because Hitchcock yes, is a master. And the thing is with Rear Window, first off, Grace Kelly was probably one of my first like real screen crushes when I was younger. Um, so that was probably a big thing at the time. But I love Jimmy Stewart. Period. Like I just, I, I, he always makes movies better to me. I love Grace Kelly. Of course, Thelma Ritter's great, and Wendell Corey is not really in it that much, but he plays a role. I mean, you see him, but he doesn't like talk or whatever. And, uh, and I would argue that Raymond Burr is a great villain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so the limitations are uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, which shame on you. Uh, is Jimmy Stewart has a broken leg because he's a photographer and he was at a uh, at a race, like an Indy 500 type race or whatever, and a wheel, a car crashed, a wheel blew off and broke his leg. It sounds ridiculous, but it's really awesome. So, <laughs> so the whole point is he's in this wheelchair and he's a photographer, so he has this huge like telephoto lens and he can look into the apartments across the way, which is super weird and kind of gross and like peeping Tomish. <laughs> but he's not doing it to like, for like sexual reasons, though there are a couple of windows that, you know, maybe yes, questionable. Miss Lonely Hearts and the woman dancing. Yeah. But he's doing it just to entertain himself. He can't go anywhere. He hates it. Grace Kelly, uh, who is his, uh, you know, uh, partner, uh, basically his love interest, so to speak, is uh, there to keep him company sometimes, but otherwise he's just bored. So he starts watching across the way. And, eventually and if you look at the rectangular windows, it's like his TV. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like he's watching TV. Yeah, and he's flipping channels, and that's a different place. And I always <laughs> thought of it that way, is it's like he's kind of flipping channels. But he thinks he witnesses something suspect. Maybe a murder, perhaps? Uh, he's not sure. And 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 you don't know. And it's, it's really, really great. The way that the storytelling is done, the minimalism there. You know, th this, this and something like Rope, like I said, Life, but all of these types of experiments Hitchcock did, are not unlike movies like uh, the the Tom Hardy uh, lock that came out, where it all takes place on a drive in his car and he talks to people on the phone, uh, or or uh, this is a very different film, uh, but but uh, like um, uh, my dinner with Andre, which we've talked about on here a few times, uh, kind of peripherally, uh, but just like that idea of like telling stories in different ways by by limiting it by limiting it right. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, Hitchcock didn't have to limit himself here. You know, he could have done a big move. He could have done Vertigo at this time. But before Vertigo, he's like, no, I'm going to do another picture that limits me. And I'm going to try to do this stuff very, very interestingly. And Rear Window is one of my all-time top ten favorite films. And it is my favorite Hitchcock, though. That's such a hard 
choice because he's made so many so many greats. But Rear Window really, really uh, taught me what storytelling and limitations is like. So when I see movies by a filmmaker who started off making these kind of passion projects or making movies like this, they get picked up by a studio, and then for some reason their movies are shit now, give yourself some limitations. Because sometimes it feels like they have too much and they don't know what to do with it. You know, and it's like, just limit yourself. And so now when I watch some movies, that's how I think. You know what I mean? Uh, Where it's like, man, I just really wish this had a few limitations. Give it a gimmick. Give it something to make it. This filmmaker was given too much freedom, damn it. I know. But isn't that a weird thing to, like, complain about? No, it's it's ironic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Pre-COVID... I saw Rear Window maybe two years ago at the Music Box Theater, the happiest place on earth. Yeah. And man, does it still play with an audience. And you saw it. I'm it sure they shot, they uh, screened it on film too, right? They had a film projector. Yes. That's that was so cool. That was back when we still got some films. No, it's, it's an amazing film. I mean, I, I don't even know what else to say. Storytelling and limitations. I mean, that's really it. Again, it's in one room and he somehow tells a story visually mostly. But he well, somehow, when you were uh, when you were recounting the plot, I was thinking of the sequence where, well, when Psycho came out, Hitchcock famously gave an interview and he said, in any great film, the sound could go out and the audience is still aware of what's going on. And I think about the opening sequence in Rear Window. I don't think I have this chapter and verse, but we see his camera. We see the picture he was taking when the race car went out of control. And then we, uh, it's one continuous shot. Yeah, the camera, it sweeps over, yeah. The, the photograph of the racing car, and then it sweeps over to his, um, the, the, the thing, his cast, the yeah. cast on his leg. And we've got it. Talk about economic, smart storytelling. Okay, he was taking the picture. And he got hurt. Beautiful, not a line of dialogue. Not a line. And and the thing is, you could take, I would say, what, uh, at least 50% of Hitchcock movies, take the, the kind of plot devices, the gimmicks that he uses, all of those things, and you could totally, I don't want this to happen. I don't want there to be remakes of Hitchcock movies. I'm just saying, like, you could learn. Uh, that's your film school. Just watch the well, his films because you could easily adapt a lot of this into new filmmaking. It's not like we like we've either overdid the technology or we're not there yet. Come on, this is stuff that can be written in, and if you have a skilled enough filmmaker to tell the story visually, this is not hard. I mean, you just pinpointed a great moment. I'm thinking of the scene in Psycho where we cut and she's in her apartment changing clothes, and the camera swoops down and shows us the money on the bed. And we say, oh, I guess she didn't go to the bank. I guess she's stealing it. Again, not one line of dialogue and no shots wasted. Nope. And it's it's absolutely great. visual storytelling. Again, just, man, you're making me think of this. Rope. At the very beginning, we see a body dropped in a box. I just just thought I know the exact shot he's going to say. That's it. And then you know they're having a party. That's the only setup you need. The tension is there instantly. You know, it's the classic bomb theory that Hitchcock had, you know, with the, oh, the bomb under the... Oh, that great story. Oh, it's so oh, great. I and that's that story for decades. Yeah, yeah. And we've we've shared it on the show, and it's just one of those the things bomb, where... The bomb. It's just, it's my favorite. Anyways, uh, for the sake of brevity, let's go and move to your last and final 
pick of this top five most influential films on our lens. Again, I knew it'd be different every time, but go ahead. So when you were recording podcasts with my favorite son, you were talking about one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, John Cassavetes. Oh my God. JB, real quick, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but we are going to be great friends now. Because for some reason, I didn't know how you would feel about John Cassavetes because he's one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. Please continue, but this makes me so happy. Because not only did I frequently quote him in film study class, but one of the other things I did when I was a high school teacher was I was in charge of the annual variety show. And a lot of people didn't like what I did with the variety show. Because my show was actually funny and sort of cutting edge. And I guess that's not a way to make friends or something. So the faculty was very split on my variety show. And the students who were in it responded to the sort of schizophrenia of we made lots of money because the show was popular with students. But like there were faculty members who thought I was the devil. Sure. And I would always tell the students in the variety show, my favorite Cassavetes quote, which I used on the Twitter machine to get you guys some attention because I was, uh, I was uh, uh, present, uh, what's the word? I was saying, click on this and listen to it. Yeah. I was trying to get people Promoting. to listen to your podcast. There's the word. Um, here's the quote from John Cassavetes. Maybe my ideas and method of filmmaking are not in line with what somebody wants, but then if they want a filmmaker who makes them feel comfortable, It's not me. I'm interested in shaking people up, not making them happy by soothing them. And I carry that with me because I think that's such a refreshing attitude for an artist to have. My job is this. It is not this. If that's what you want, you need to find someone else. And I think my final film on the list is the biggest example of this I can think of, and it's not by John Cassavetes, it's by David Lynch. The film is Eraserhead. Wow, yeah. Which I actually showed in film study class for decades. Oh my God. If, oh boy. How did that go? <laughs> talk about polarizing. Although I went back and I was reading some old columns um, from F This Movie and some former students weighed in and at least two of them said, you introduced that you introduced that movie to me and it's now among my favorite films. So it wasn't all negative. Yeah. But I understand the negativity. A Racerhead <coughs> is a small low budget student film that David Lynch made when he was still at AFI and it became one of the original midnight movies along with uh, The Harder They Come and Pink Flamingos that first sort of popularized midnight movies in the late 70s. And the reason I showed it in film study class is because Hollywood films are a certain way. They present reality in a certain way. Hollywood films are a product. They want you to like them. They want you to buy them. And I can't think of another film that has no interest whatsoever in entertaining you in a conventional sense. There are no stars. There is no plot. David Lynch has often described the plot as a dream of dark and troubling things. There is no memorable dialogue. The soundtrack is shrill 
and unpleasant. The film is full of unfathomable images and repellent images. The film shows just what a circus parade most regular movies are. We're here to entertain you, folks. Let me entertain you. Let me make you smile. A racer head is going after something very different. I think it's the anti-film. If you think of any reason that you and I like the other films on our lists, Eraserhead is here to say, no, I have no interest whatsoever in providing you with that. But we still love um, it. You know what I mean? Well, <laughs> I, I love it. And I know a lot of people who don't. I think my lovely wife has seen it once and she said that's enough for one lifetime. Um he made it over an impossible period of time. Jack Nance had to keep that hairstyle forever. He kept running out of money and having to find money in other places. When Jake started at AFI and I went out to visit him for the first time, he took me to the barn at AFI. And it was like a religious pilgrimage for the two of us. We went to the barn where a racer had was filmed. You weren't allowed inside the barn anymore because the structure was now old and dangerous. They were afraid <laughs> that it would like collapse around you. But I remember how uh, how memorable and how how uh, emotionally resonant it was to visit the barn. And then, of course, we had dinner at Bob's Big Boy which is where David Lynch famously had lunch every single day during the making of the film and ordered the exact same meal for lunch at Bob's Big Boy. And so that was part of the pilgrimage. And interestingly enough, uh, F this movie had been going on for maybe two or three years and we're sitting in Bob's Big Boy and a stranger came up to us and said, are you JB from F this movie? Cause they had heard my voice and they recognized it from the podcast. And I said, yes, thinking I was about to be murdered. And that was <laughs> the first time I was ever recognized for F this movie. And it taught me, I would hate to be famous. <laughs> I would hate to be famous. <laughs> That's gotta be the worst. Yeah. So uh, we have a story of a, a character named Henry who has a girlfriend and he's invited over for dinner and it's the worst. I'm going to meet your parents date in the history of movies because well, they're having chickens, but they're man-made and grandma might be dead. And there's a baby the doctors aren't sure if it's a baby, but there's a baby. So the two of you have to get married. And so they do. And they move in together and there's a baby, but there's not a baby. And David Lynch has never told people how he did that special effect. Although I have a theory and um, it's just one of the most repellent, awful things ever. And then a whole bunch of other things happen. And it's a film you must see. If you claim to love film, you have to see Eraserhead for good or ill. The film that has no interest whatsoever in entertaining you in a conventional sense. <laughs> I want, I want to, I want to make your point actually by giving my number one because it, again, 
actually perfectly ties together. And we can kind of talk about both of these, okay? Um, because uh, my number one is the slot for Stanley Kubrick movies, because as you can see, like with my uh, tattoo, for example, I just have like a Kubrick collage all the way down my arm. Um, and I, like, I love Kubrick. I've talked about this ad nauseum on, on, on the podcast. But uh, the film I'm going to choose, though, is The Shining. Um, because it's not my favorite Kubrick per se, which again, like Hitchcock, it's hard for me to say what is, but I'm going to use that just because I know it probably the best because I've written papers and different things on it. Uh, it's also my favorite horror film, which people, uh, that listen to the show would know this. Um, uh, but The Shining. That's a great choice. Yeah. Kubrick actually had his cast and crew go to a theater that's right. Yeah, and then he showed them you. eraser, eraser head, and said, "I want my movie to feel like this." So, if you're a person, just to make your point, JB, if you're a person that needs a reason to go see something that is essentially trying not to entertain you, if you like Kubrick or The Shining, Kubrick liked this movie a lot so much so that he made people watch it, and he was like, "Yo, we got to do this thing." Uh, so, if that's not a sell, I don't know what is. And interestingly enough. There's an image in the movie The Shining. A lot of people are familiar with it because it was wood burned on their brain and they can't get rid of it no matter how much they try. There's actually something of an explanation for it if you've read the book. But I would suggest it's an image that's straight out of a racer head. When Wendy looks down the hallway and sees the well-dressed man in the bedroom with the man in the bear costume. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Between his legs. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's become a meme. It's become this image that we associate with yeah. mystery and horror. And what the fuck does that possibly mean? Yeah. And it looks like it could be an outtake from a racer head if it were in black and white. Um, Stephen King, who I actually like a lot, but the one thing I've always found unfathomable is that he is not a fan of The Shining. Yeah. And he has reasons for this. He thinks it misrepresents his book. Although later they do a TV movie version that King what? endorses that's unwatchable. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just awful with a capital A. I remember I read the book in high school when it first came out, and it was the first book I ever read that scared me. The book scared me and I didn't want to go to bed and I, and I had to put it down and I was scared to go to sleep because as we all know, uh, Kubrick was smart enough to know that the topiary animals in the book would never work in a movie. It would come across as funny and comical and ludicrous. And so he changed it to the hedge maze, but in the book, there's these topiary animals that come to life. And you want to talk about the difference between literature and movies. I thought the topiary animals in the book were tremendously frightening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Wendy, Wendy looks up and it's like, did that just move? Yeah. See, that's so awesome. Like I haven't read the book actually. And, and, and I'm one of those people that when something gets uh, adapted, whether it's uh, a comic book or a novel or whatever, TV show, anything, I don't care if it's different, to be honest. Same thing with like video games being remade. Uh, you know, as long as because it's it's two different mediums. Two, that is it. 
It's two different mediums. Why does it matter? Here's the thing. The book has some stuff in it that's freaking awesome when you read it, apparently, from what you've said, right? These, uh, these animals, all these things, right? Um, Kubrick created something that is, one, very Kubrick, right? <laughs> uh, like, very much his thing. But two, it is probably, and again, I haven't read the book, so I can't speak to this, but it's probably equally as terrifying, but for this medium, He's doing something that might capture somewhat of the spirit, but even if it's only like hints of the spirit, but it's its own thing. He made one of the greatest horror movies ever made, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, if it was my baby, that novel, and someone fucked with it, maybe I would have a problem. Maybe I could see it. But it's like, dude, you have to at least praise the artistry here, because here's the thing. The Shining is so masterfully done at the beginning, where all of the performers, Shelley Duvall, Jack Nicholson, uh, especially, they're just dry. Like, their performances are stiff, they're dry, but then by the end of the film, if you see their performances, you know yeah. that that was intentional, because they're incredible by the end. And that's probably because also mental abuse. He's showing well. <laughs> the descent. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. He's showing the descent. I mean, you have these normal normies, you know what I mean? Like, these dumb normies on, in a car driving to this place. And then midway through the film, you get that really pivotal signature scene where, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy. And and he's, you know, uh, kind of like uh, a predator and she's the prey and he's like following her through this this uh, room. I mean, that scene is incredible. And you really start to see, again, unfortunately, Shelley Duvall has like nervous breakdowns on the set of this movie. But, you know, that yeah, she would still attribute to like it still fucks with her to this day. Um, but Kubrick, Kubrick did that with everyone. Everybody. I mean, he did that with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman on Eyes Wide Shut, yep. just doing it again and again and again. To show you his mania, uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, he had a production assistant actually sit down and type every page. He didn't want to use a Xerox machine. He wanted it to look as if Jack had actually typed it. Yeah, That's the attention to detail in that film. I can't believe um, he did Spartacus because Anthony Mann, of course, was attached to it first. And then he comes on, uh, you know, thanks to Kirk Douglas. And it's like, dude, you couldn't have made a bigger, like, error if you're trying to get someone who's going to do this quickly. <laughs> because, like, oh, there are the yeah. scenes where they're just, like, dead bodies and he's, like, sitting there with, like, a glass. This might even be from Paths of Glory. I can't remember. But he's sitting there, like, with, like, binoculars or whatever overlooking this scene. And he's just, like with a walkie to or whatever, however he's communicating with him, you know, he's just like move body 42 over a few feet. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like it's, it's like, so, yeah, it's like so specific, you know, he's just great. And, and the, you know, I've, I've also talked to film or uh, professors and stuff about the ethics behind Kubrick. It's like, you know, is it fair to do some of the things that he's done to, to people, not just Shelley Duvall, you said it right. I mean, uh, so many people in every film, he basically he forces them into positions where they can actually experience what the people that they're playing are experiencing. So Definitely. when Tom Cruise walks into the room and throws his mask from Eyes Wide Shut on the on the bed, he had to do that like over a hundred times or something. And it's like this is a stupid two second throwaway. Like this isn't that important to most people, but Kubrick was making him do it over and over and over so he would look as exhausted as his character in the movie was supposed to look. Exactly. And he's just really, I mean, for a guy who loves chess, he really plays chess with every aspect of his life. You know what I mean? And and I'll tell you the thing, I, I put in my notes, literally the only note I have for this is, uh, for like, why is this on my list? 
everything. Like that's all I put because everything about Kubrick, it's the, the meticulous- everything bagel of movies. Absolutely. Well, but not even just The Shining. All of his films, minus I would set Spartacus aside a little bit only because I know it wasn't kind of his dream child, you know. But all of these other films are so meticulous. Earlier, when we were talking about film noir, I was actually going to make the point that uh, maybe with a couple drinks in me and some prodding, I would make a case that The Killing is the best film noir movie ever made. It's my favorite film noir ever. Certainly, with the last line, that's the film noiriest of any movie. <laughs> um, when The Shining first came out, I was in high school, and I went to see it with a group of friends and loved it. And then the next night, I went back with a different group of friends and saw it again in the same theater and because we were late, we had to sit in the front row. And oh. so I afforded myself the opportunity at a certain point in the film, no spoilers here, Scatman Crothers comes back to the Overlook Hotel. And I slowly turned myself around in my seat. So I was looking at the audience and I got to see 500 people react to that in the same way. It was awesome. It's like that famous picture of all the people wearing the 3D glasses. It was 500 people with the same expression on their face. And I know this is an audio podcast, and I'm now showing Austin what I'm talking about. It was 500 people who looked like this. (laughs) Big eyes, wide open, terrified mouth. (laughs) It was awesome. Yeah. It was one of my favorite movie-going memories. It really was. And the music box, which I keep talking about as if they're (laughs) sponsoring this podcast, um, every October they have a horror marathon where if you're lucky enough to snag tickets, you're in the theater from noon on Saturday to noon on Sunday. You're in the theater for 24 hours of horror movies. And what happens is I go, but I'm old, So at about two o'clock, I go home, I catch a nap, I take a shower, I come back fresh as a daisy, and I see the last two films. And one year, the last film was The Shining. And it was the first time I had seen it in about 10 years. And like I said, talk about a film that still holds up. It is timeless. It is a masterpiece, if only for the man in the bear costume. Absolutely. And that is a pivotal moment. Uh, you know, uh, you just can't forget those things. Like you said, it's like burned into your brain. Yeah. And, and you know, I've done whole papers. I actually went with Jake to a conference actually presenting on The Shining and Kubrick's use of fear. This is, I mean, not only is everything Kubrick, you know, uh, a part of this. He's my favorite filmmaker of all time. And I just love uh, just watching his movies. As makes- evidenced by your left arm. <laughs> yeah. But everything, everything I watch is like Kubrick is a part of that, a fundamental part of that lens. But on top of that, the reason I chose The Shining specifically is because it is specifically like uh, clearly a part of a genre, which is horror. I, it, not necessarily like a genre movie. I'm not saying that, but it is a part of horror. And uh, it made me completely rethink how horror movies should be or how they can be, rather, might be a better way to put it. Uh I'm not really ranking these movies. Like, these are just five. You know, if we did this podcast tomorrow, it might be different movies. (laughs) Like, I mean, there are just too many that influence that lens, right? But these are definitely very, very top five uh, 
contenders for sure. And the, again, this this is Stanley Kubrick's slot, right? Like I could pretty much almost put any movie and talk about how that influenced XYZ. Full Metal Jacket with war cinema. Uh, uh, the idea of uh, Clockwork Orange and how you can take controversy and things like that and tell other stories and how you can even... I mean, think of that and then think of something like Natural Born Killers. Like there, you can tell there are distinct similarities yeah. in the filmmaking that is you know what i mean I, i'm thinking of i'm thinking of dr strangelove and lolita in terms of comedy yeah. that it it seems to me that whenever kubrick turned to a genre he showed you what that genre was capable of and then rewrote the rules for that genre yeah well i was actually just about to get not just to those movies not just to like 2001 but barry Lyndon, which is hard for some people to sit through because they feel like it's too slow tension in that movie the ease yeah. that he, like the easy way that he builds tension in Barry Lyndon and just grips me. Like, dude, I'm just edging my seat first time I watched that movie with these like duels that they have, you know? And I mean, and also the way, also the way Barry Lyndon looks. I mean, talk about a feast. Yeah, that was the it's next thing because those candles. So beautiful. It's gorgeous. Everything's a painting. <laughs> Everything's a painting. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's really great. I mean, even back to like Paths of Glory. I mean, there's so much to talk about with that. I mean, all of these movies, uh, really, they're just they are the lens, you know. Like, and imagine my my love for someone like Paul Thomas Anderson, who's one of my favorite living filmmakers. Um, you know, with something like There Will Be Blood, and I can just see Kubrick peppered through this whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, I can see the influence of Kubrick. Oh, definitely. Yeah, uh, and and even to a lesser extent but even something like the master i mean I, I love watching these new movies and people i love finding kubrick in all of these things you know what i mean and uh yeah he's he's probably my number one biggest influencer on how i view film and it could be any number of his movies for different reasons but today i'm choosing the shining uh just to kind of have more of a horror tie-in too you know i was never a huge horror fan until i saw the shining and it made me go back and watch others and kind of reevaluate, and I found a whole trove of horror movies that I love now. So, um, I mean, he he was hugely influential. Yeah. And horror movies are very important because remember, October's almost here. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, that pretty much sums up our top five uh, most influential films on how we see movies. <laughs> My goal is everyone being different. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that wraps it up. Anything you want to leave us with? When does F This Movie drop? That's an important thing, too. Uh, F This Movie's podcasts drop every Tuesday, and uh, I would recommend that site to you. And I'm, I will just say, movies is good. Movies is good. Thank you, JB. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with JB from F This Movie. Definitely go check out the podcast F This Movie as well as the you know blog or the website, whatever you want to call it that they have. It's you know it's a fun time. You'll get interesting perspectives. And hey, JB's on there, so definitely go you know check him out. Uh, what a great guy! Can't wait to have his son Jake on again as well. I don't know when we're doing that, but we're gonna make that happen. We have to do it sooner rather than later because I just can't stand it. I like talking to that guy, too. The whole Bondelier family. I gotta have Jan on sometime just for the hell of it. Just because they're just great. Anyways, so, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was the episode. We had uh, 10 great movies to talk about. If you haven't seen any of those, definitely put them on your list. 
Go out of your way to watch all 10 of them. I'll stand by all 10. Just go check them out. Remember, uh, next week I'm going to have Joe Shearer back on. And uh, our old pal Joe, we're going to talk about the Candyman remake, which we're going to be screening ahead of time. And, of course, this episode is going to drop after it comes out anyways. But the point is, uh, you know, we get to see it early. And since Joe's not here to brag, I'll brag, I guess. Uh, But, no, it's going to be a fun time. I'm looking forward to talking about that with him. Uh, But, hey, until then... Thank you for sticking with us. We love you so much. We, I just can't thank you enough for the support that you give listening and everything. So with that said, good night, good luck, and take it easy. <laughs>